Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The poet Anne Michael said, history and memory share events. That is, they share time and space. Every moment is two moments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. We're pleased to have Sumit Guha on the show today to talk about his new book, History and Collective Memory in South Asia. Sumit Guha is the named professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin and author of Beyond Caste, Identity and Power in South Asia, Past and Present, and Environment and Ethnicity in India. Sumit Guha, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Renee. Thank you for inviting me, and I look forward to a good conversation. As do I. Uh, history and historical narrative have become very controversial in recent years. Tell us how you became interested in exploring the influences on the academic study of history and the development of public knowledge of the past, and what you hope your work will accomplish. Uh, thank you. Well, I guess uh, I, should, I would actually go back almost uh, 20 years. So India, South Asia has... Uh, a large number of major languages. Uh, my research language, major research language, Marathi, is spoken currently by over 100 million people as a first language. So I began to realize that the pre-modern, that is to say the pre-British or pre-colonial historical record from South Asia varied considerably across linguistic regions. And that gave rise to my reflections as to why this might happen and why certain areas generated uh, uh, historical narratives, narratives which were located in factual rather than mythic time. And, and that's how I would distinguish you know, between projects that are attempting history and projects that, while written in the past tense, you know, once upon a time kind of things, are either uh, works of the literary imagination or of the mythic imagination. So, so this was my first reflection. Then uh, you, you're probably, you're at least you, you and your uh, listeners are probably aware that uh, over the last few years, certainly the last five years, the question of history, memory, historical monuments, statues, uh, memorials, etc., have become a very contested and stressed, you know, sort of vigorously argued uh, issue in the United States and in other parts of the world, notably Great Britain. So, for instance, my own campus at the University of Texas was, uh, in the early 20th century, adorned with a whole series of statues of prominent Confederates, uh, the leaders of the Confederate States of America that tried to secede and mm-hmm. sparked a civil war. So, uh this was these uh, the the perpetuation of these statues 
was in fact then contested on the grounds that removing them was an effort to erase history. So history then again, you know, how did his, how does history and memory interact came to the fore. And then finally, there were a series of quite striking exonerations where people who had been convicted in the 19, late 80s and early 90s of child abuse and uh, various kinds of uh, incredible sexual practices were actually exonerated. And that was a ref- refutation of what had been called the recovered memory uh, movement, the, rec- uh, the, sort of re- the sort of whole, I think, pseudo-scientific uh, effort at exacting repressed memory. So therefore, three different strains of my thought uh, came together to make me want to study uh, memory overall and then history as a subset of memory. Oh, that is very interesting. Yes, I I remember that uh, recovered memory controversy. It it was uh, destroyed many lives. Yes, and uh, yes, and it raised the whole question about memory. Uh, now you uh, you consider academic historians to be cloistered. Why is that? Well, it's a uh, uh, it's a borrowing actually from. Um, the, the historian Deepesh Chakrabarti at the University of Chicago. And uh, it's, uh, it, it struck me as a good term because uh, professional historians or professional keepers of memory are actually quite expensive to sustain. And, I'm, and uh, secondly, as full-time, uh, you know, engaged full-time in their profession, they are often enclosed in not necessarily a physical cloister, though of course the cloister as a church institution has deep roots in Western, in, in European uh, history. But um, so it's, it's a way in which people within a particular enclosed community supported, however, financially and ideologically by the larger enveloping society, maintain a specialized tradition of the creation of historical memories. So that's why I find the cloister a productive metaphor, but at the same time, the cloister is a cell, uh, to change metaphors again, uh, is a cell within a larger social organism. And not every kind of social organism generates cloisters or professional sites for the production of memory. And societies that have them can lose them over historical time, and they can reinvent them anew. So uh, it's a sense that I have, especially, you know, with, I mean, with with much of uh, the 20th and 21st century trends, that uh, these are also fragile institutions, and uh, there's nothing permanent about them. Memory, you can think of as being a necessary feature of human societies, but specialized historians for the production, the regulation, or the verification of memory, these are uh, these are sort of you know periodically present and periodically absent. There is nothing inevitable about their existence. So even when an academic historian or the discipline of his academic history is cloisters, um, it's it's also influenced by neighboring disciplines. Uh, 
you talk about that in the book. Tell us yes. about it. Right. Yes. That's um, so. Uh, well, uh, so the so the historians occupy uh, quarters, an area of varying space within the larger cloister, which is at present heavily dominated by the natural and some of the applied uh, sciences. So, but there has been, I think, always a kind of dialogue between these. Now, the major people next door, or the major, in fact, the dominant presence in the cloister for many centuries, were uh, men, and I would have to say men. Uh, religious traditions generated particular kinds of memory. But so necessarily, for example, if we revert to move to, you know, where the cloister uh, etymologically speaking, existed, which is Europe, the authenticity and the infallibility of the churches, of the established churches' version of uh, the creation of the world, biblical history, etc., had to be accepted by everybody, even if they chipped away at the edges of that set of beliefs. And some of the earliest Inquiries actually originated in parallel disciplines, which were the forensic sciences, uh, forensic in the legal sense. The forensic sciences related to the verification of charters, deeds, and various kinds of claims bearing upon taxes and tax exemptions and things like that, property. And uh, one of the most famous uh, examples, at least most famous amongst historians of the early medieval, is the disproof. The, the the demonstration that the so-called donation of Constantine, Constantine the Roman emperor who converted to Christianity, the so-called donation of Constantine by which he gave all his lands to the all his domains to the church was actually a forgery, probably created in the ninth or tenth century. So so historians drew in skills on the one side from the verification of charters and documents and claims to property and inheritance. And on the other side, from the logic and reasoning, which formed part of advanced theology. So that's an example. And then more recently, in the 20th century, with the advance in the natural sciences, you had things like radiocarbon dating, which revolutionized archaeology, and then other processes, other byproducts of um, the application of physics to older sources, uh, another sort of famous example of this is the dating of the so-called Turin Shroud, where radiocarbon completely, uh, you know, essentially refuted this whole idea uh, and the whole idea that it was the original burial shroud of Jesus Christ, and uh, so on. So that there's a, a constant adaptation and borrowing from the natural sciences and the tools of the natural sciences. To, uh, to the learning, uh, to the study of historical processes. So there's a movement uh, back, and, and there's a movement actually probably more in. On the other hand, things that were strongly established earlier, like the existence of demons or demonic possession and witchcraft, which, you know, very sort of highly educated people believed and um, sought to, ex you know, uh, sought to destroy, uh, those cannot now be considered to be real sources. There's the same uh, in the 19th century, geology was the dominant new science because it overthrew biblical chronology. So 
there's been continuous movement or conversation between the residents of the cloister and historians are only a fraction of those. We see, we, that is people in the West, uh, see history as taking place within a linear view of time. How do cultures that conceive of time as cyclical view history? Well, uh, that, of course, you know, the cyclical uh, view of the ages uh, seems to have been a, at least a fairly common element of Indo-European uh, notions of cosmology. So there is, uh, well, here I'm most familiar with the, with the Sanskrit traditions, uh, Sanskrit being the ancient, uh, the ancient priestly language of science and uh, priest scholarship in, in, in India. Uh, about 3,000 years. So in that, the idea of cyclicality is subordinated to certain kinds of historical process. But the, uh, so, you know, you can have short-term verification. It was this donation or charter authentic? What is the exact genealogy of this or that line of kings? You know, are they fit to marry into and things like that. So those, in a sense, bracket the fact that the whole world will is sort of you know going through an endless series of cycles, and even the shorter series of the of ages runs to four hundred and thirty-two thousand years. So you know, for purposes of fifty or a hundred years, you can always bracket that because it would be like in modern calculus an infinitesimal. So you can treat it as a point or a line if you wish. So I think that was, uh, but generally speaking, and uh, the major work on this has been done by the uh, historian and philologist Sheldon Pollock. Generally speaking, uh, it downgraded the importance of rigorous historical inquiry uh, in the and uh, and also of the uh, of the existence of time as an independent dimension. Someone once said, memory makes liars of us all, <laughs> referring to the way personal memories are reworked as an individual matures. Uh, once it was thought that personal memories are like videotapes of the past, but we know that that's not the case. They are dynamic. Memories are recalled in a change in context and then return to memory altered from the last time it was accessed. To, to what extent is that true for collective memory or social memory as well? Yes, well, uh, here, of course, I've drawn very heavily on the important work of uh, Maurice Halbach, Halbach who, uh, who, who, you know, he was sort of, um, he was killed, executed in 1945 during the German occupation of France. But he, he studied the overlayering of memory as well as the sites of memory, uh, site, S-I-T-E, the sites of memory in, in fact, uh, Palestine, uh, Palestine slash Israel, and um, how successive regimes had tried to implant their own memories over these sites and um, relics and particular places. And uh, so... Here, in fact, the process of reconstruction 
is not only necessary in the same way as recon- as much of you know conscious human memory is reconstructed here it was not just necessary but it was also oriented towards a particular overarching set of beliefs so uh so the so essentially okay i should not start rambling about a number of things but briefly the 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 reconstruction and the transmission of collective memory is even more a societally determined process than of individual memory because the complete dissolution of individual memory of would also involve uh you know as happens in extreme dementia i remember in fact one of my my mother uh, succumbed to this in her later years uh it dissolves the personality the the self essentially dissolves in societies the social organization may dissolve but the population may persist and when the social organ societal organization for the generation and transmission of memories is lost whether that mechanism of transmission is oral or textual or uh mnemonic around particular sites monuments buildings stones etc whichever of these it is it is possible for a human population to persist but to lose the collective memory that it formerly had and to often and to usually replace it with a new collective memory well that brings us to an important point the uh the survival of biblical and hellenistic cultures after mm-hmm. the decline of the ancient world has been attributed frequently to uh their foundational texts but written texts as important as they certainly are are not the whole story are they uh, tell us about the relationship between social historical memory and identity yes thank you that's um well uh i guess at least from the beginnings of agriculture when uh humans and this this was a phenomenon which was probably you know it was not uh, a single human group that uh that sort of the idea that the that the seed comes back after its kind is uh, quite deeply implanted and therefore that is quite quickly extended to human societies and uh consequently one of the earliest forms i or at least well, one of the most common forms in even very simple societies seems to be genealogical memory and um memories of descent now the memories may not actually correspond to real descent groups if we can think of you know independent uh, confirmation of real descent groups so that's that one kind of a memory which is relevant which is collective in so far as it's relevant to the interaction between families lineages tribes and other groups and uh, it may be held collectively by the elders or it may sometimes be formalized and transmitted through communities of bards and genealogists and the specialized institutions seem to arise in somewhat more developed and affluent societies where the dedication the creation of a body of specialists is feasible so is uh, is that what you were uh, seeking uh- 
Well, certainly. I mean, it's a big subject, and that uh, that addresses a part of it. Um, the uh, the noted uh, Jewish historian Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi. Oh yes, of course. Uh, yes, uh, he he argued he that uh, that the emphasis on memory in Judaism made the past present. That that was his phrase. Yes, uh, and and that differentiated uh, what he was talking about memory from the work of the modern historian. Did you find something similar in South Asia as well? That's, uh, uh, yes, well, first, of course, you know, I'd agree. Uh, Yerushalmi's uh, book has been uh, uh, Sakhar. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly or not. Uh, Sakhar was a yeah. great uh, inspiration to me. And in fact, I, I have, as I've argued in my own uh, brief notices of this, uh, far superior to the idea of Asman, Jan Asman, who has argued that um, that you know there was something uniquely characteristic of the southern um, of the peoples of uh, the southern uh, Israelite peoples of Judea uh, that caused them to be able to transmit memory. But Yerushalmi, I think, uh, if I'm if I understood his argument correctly said that once the pattern of divine action through history had been recognized, which is uh, probably, which in, uh, is sort of before the destruction of the temple by the Romans, uh, once that pattern was recognized, then further careful historical inquiry was unnecessary because the explanation to subsequent phases, uh, and this is in the in the rabbinic period after the sort of dispersed, you know, the destruction of the original sites and the occupation by the Romans in Palestine, uh, their considerable efforts to create their own sites of memory in temples and forts and garrisons across the countryside, that later on, the same kind of intensive inquiry was not necessary. Now, in some degree, I see parallels to the argument made by Sheldon Pollock uh, which uh, which he published in the Journal of the American Oriental Society in 1989, if I'm correct, uh, where he uh, called Mimansa. Mimansa is the Sanskrit school of logical inquiry. Mimansa and the problem of history. And he argued that by problematizing the independent existence of time, they opened the way to a structural understanding of change in human societies in which the details, you know, the sort of things that drive historians or that uh, historians work hard to verify, particular dates, particular places, specific sites, documents, etc., those details become in a degree irrelevant. What is important is to identify the archetype to which particular human phenomena are reverting. So I can see a certain uh, parallel to uh, a certain parallel with Yerushalmi, but uh, I wouldn't, uh, they work, uh, you know, they're sort of the two traditions of uh, considering memory and history work differently because, as you observed at the beginning, the Indic tradition still has the notion that it's all ultimately cyclical. So even the gods, for example, will. 
will ultimately in the decay of the world and its dissolution will be reborn and you know reenact their roles through the four ages that characterize the cosmos without end so so there's a difference between the idea that that time moves towards ultimately a day of judgment which is the linear notion which uh, all the three abrahamic religions uh, contain judaism being of course the oldest uh, that time moves linearly linearly to a conclusion and that time uh, eternally returns to its archetypal patterns which would have been the ancient greek the ancient iranian and ancient indian so tell us about folk history and accepted tradition uh, in pre-colonial india and how they were impacted by british colonialism thank you that's uh, the first uh, the, the uh, since i developed an idea that historical memory is uh, is re- is sort of generated and transmitted through institutions the structures of folk history in my argument the structures of folk history equally reflect the structures of the society itself and different regions of south asia from the afghan borderlands of what is today northwestern pakistan through the east into uh, into sort of burma and bengal uh each of these developed particular traditions of folk memory which reflected the uh the kind of um, the requirements of their of particular specific social groups in those regions so where genealogical inheritance of lands was a key institution then tracing of viable genealogies and i say viable genealogies because they couldn't r- cut across the you know the actual control of lands that powerful men possessed but the creation of viable genealogies was a way of both regulating and understanding the extant social organization and there's been a very i've cited this several but there's been a very fine there was a very fine study of these traditions in the swat valley which is a, a high mountain uh, uh, valley in northwest pakistan and swat was an ancient tra- center of buddhism uh, many mon- monasteries and um, remains of monasteries many statues and so forth have subsequently been uncovered but by the 1400s or 1500s all memory of that was completely erased because the institutional structures of the monasteries the monastic communities the texts that they generated all of these had simply vanished and a new institutional memory history of the conquest of the valley by the dominant yusufzai tribe and its distribution into 13 large units amongst the sub groups of the tribe and so on had been generated and that was the basis of the collective memory of the region uh, lesser people who were not landholders blacksmiths muleteers uh, etc they didn't actually possess much more than a knowledge of one or two generations of their own family and in so far as they had a descent uh, a myth of origin 
it would be to what Barth quite appositely calls culture heroes, the first man to smelt iron, the first man to carve wood, etc., depending, you know, smiths, carpenters, etc. So, uh, so my argument is that even folk memory, and this is an instance of folk memory because it only entered the textual tradition quite late in the Swath Valley, even folk memory reflects a society that generates and transmits it. And uh, you have this uh, show in other regions of India, in some areas where you had a similar landholding elite, you had a similar folk memory uh, explaining the distribution of the lands and claims to them. But in areas where you had a more, uh, a less hierarchical, uh, more egalitarian peasant society, partly resulting from the fact that the areas are not very, you know, they don't generate much of a surplus, an agricultural surplus, in those areas, land rights and entitlements to various kinds of things in the village communities were more widely distributed and generated a more widespread and specific set of memories which quite early begin to enter the documentary record because they're litigated at slightly higher levels of gentry and uh, the emerging early modern kingdoms. So, so the structures of memory, the socially relevant structures of memory, are not reflections, but they originate by, in the social structures and the sets of entitlements that exist in particular societies. And consequently, they vary across the Indian subcontinent. And indeed, they vary in various parts of the world. I've discussed briefly, uh, you know, claims to aristocracy and uh, in both France, in medieval France and medieval Spain as examples of very similar processes uh, where that was the... Uh, that was the kind of real popular history, the one that people, you know, broke each other's heads over on occasion in <laughs> rural society. And uh, other stuff like that, you know, all the British were descended from uh, from the Trojans and things like that. Those were more, uh, you know, they were sort of good to think, but they had no immediately social relevance. They didn't change anybody's entitlements to an estate, to a land, to a tax exemption or something else worth fighting about or honor which, uh, you know, honor was also a sort of tangible and very important element. But there was a crisis in uh, historiography uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries because of the sudden rise of the West to nearly global domination. Tell us about that crisis. Certainly. Um, yes, I didn't realize that that was the second part of your question, but I thought I should pause a little Well. Um, certainly there was. And one of the things, uh, and here I'm speaking specifically of South Asia, which was, you know, which became the major part of the British Empire in Asia by about uh, 1846 or so. Uh, earlier domains of collective memory could, could exist independent of each other. There was no force that would necessarily put them into conversation with each other. So if in one village, the dominant landholders wished to sustain a particular uh, myth of origin or a genuine genealogy, uh, then uh, 50 miles, 50 kilometers away, 
it need not prevail and you could have quite a different and contradictory uh, set of stories. Similarly, important pilgrimage sites, uh, places where, um, you know, sort of um, charismatic uh, holy uh, men or uh, other goddesses or gods were located, had their own kinds of special memories. And people did not feel any pressure to amalgamate or to put these in contention with each other. So the Mughal emperors could patronize a certain kind of high Persian history uh, in their courts in Delhi and Agra. The the villagers could have their own histories, and uh, in some ways, uh, it uh, you know it was sort of extremely diverse with colonial rule and the much greater power of the colonial bureaucracy, as well as. Um, the general bureaucratic tendency towards trying to standardize and make uniform. And finally, the rise of the colonial school as the anteroom to the colonial bureaucracy. So there's now a real social need to attend a colonial school in order to get any share, or at least to to lay, lay claim to a share in the governance of this new and extremely powerful empire. And in the colonial school, and particularly with the printed low-cost textbook running into you know th- print runs of thousands, for the first time, people were forced to confront a colonial and standard version of their own history. All of them had to confront it. It was not possible to fall back on, uh, you know, to sort of maintain a kind of distinct tradition. And not surprisingly, a, early colonial renderings of history were slanted towards um, justifying their own dominance. And it created reactions to it in the sense of anti-colonial narratives or narratives of past and ancient glory. But it also forced different communities, regions, and others to come to some kind of, to at least put forward some kind of unified narrative. And it couldn't be a narrative which was merely authenticated by having been told by the elders or even by some bundles of papers, grants, deeds, or other records that the family had preserved. These had to be authenticated before the bar of a new uh, dominant Western historical establishment. And this forces histories into more contentious modes than they had previously been. And then in the interwar period, there was a growth of alternative histories of the past and therefore different visions of the futures that were taught in the various countries uh, of the British Empire. Tell us about how that process developed in India and Pakistan. Right. Well, uh, Pakistan as such was only conceived in 1940, uh, which is seven years before the uh, British uh, withdrawal from India. But um, it's, uh, well, like, you know, most things about South Asia, it's, it's sort of complicated by the fact that you have 20 or so languages and uh, uh, all the, every religion of the old world, including some that have not survived anywhere else. But um, 
so it's uh, it was uh, uh, well first of course there was the kind of there was the imperial narrative of gradual progress under the tutelage of a benevolent empire there was the anti-imperial narrative which argued for the ancient presence of what was now beginning to be conceived as an indian nation but then there were alternative narratives uh, which were either regional for particular uh, you know large linguistic communities and peoples or increasingly in the period between world war 1 and 2 uh religiously oriented now in this the british imperial the early british imperial historians had turned almost automatically to the persian chronicles and historical works that they inherited from the mughal emperors who ruled approximately uh from the early 1500s through to the 1700s they turned to the persian because it drew from the arabic and ultimately from the biblical tradition of a single chronology and they found that a convenient i mean they found that in fact a necessary way of recording narratives whereas uh, and building a single narrative and the indian nationalist tradition also had to create a separate as a distinct narrative but in the resort in the resort to uh, to a historical tradition the persian historical tradition that had originated within the islamic or the islamicate idea world it was uh, it was easy to turn it to a narrative of muslim glory uh that a particular religious community had dominated and governed and so forth in fact obviously it you know it's the dynasty and its officials and courtiers of various uh faiths and persuasions that actually ruled managed the apparatus of empire but in the reaction to the you know the unquestioned dominance of 80 or 90000 englishmen or british people in south asia over 300 odd million people there was a certain tendency to try and reimagine the muslim past as having been like that that the you know sort of uh, muslim nationalists could imagine uh, or uh, schoolboys and you know sort of the literati could imagine themselves being exactly like the mughal emperors except of course there would be some 60 or 70 million of them but uh, <laughs> so that was a uh, there was a kind of temptation to fall into that similarly the british reconstruction of an ancient past was easily turned to a narrative of hindu nationalism and past hindu glory in which the islamic dynasties were seen as responsible for the downfall of the ancient civilization so in a sense the process of trying of creating firstly writing ancient colonial history which had not been uh, done earlier or of reworking the islamic traditions of chronicle history both of these opened the path to the implanting of narratives of um, of religious conflict and of religious nationalism in south asia the mainstream of the indian nationalist movement led by the indian national congress especially under uh, mahatma gandhi mk gandhi and jawahar lal nehru the first prime minister of india uh, 
rejected these ideas. Gandhi rejected it from a spiritual and religious basis by refusing to engage with who had uh, you know, oppressed whom in any past period of history, but in fact offering a new political regime as a moral choice for the future and not as either vengeance or recovery of the past. Nehru, on the other hand, had a more modernist idea and was committed, therefore, to the idea of a sort of ancient and persisting Indian nation which had within itself the capacity to absorb and accommodate many kinds of new faiths, new peoples, and so forth, and that he also projected as his um, vision for the secular republic of India, which uh, was then actually embodied in the Indian constitution uh, promulgated in 1950, which uh, uh, is one of the few post-colonial constitutions that is still uh, you know, current and extant. So, so this is, uh, but in, in, in the struggle to control the apparatus of empire, there was always a temptation to generate claims out of the historical new uniform historical narratives that the British, through their institutionalization of education, of selection for government employment, and the implanting of the English language trans-regionally, and that the British had created. Not, you know, with the obvious, uh, with the intent of generating conflict, though they, in many cases they did not uh, mind it very much, but uh, it institutionalized, it centralized, it forced uh, collective memory to choose something, uh, to reject it, to choose a version of the past, and thereby also to choose a version of the future. The Gandhian uh, version of of action as a moral choice, unconstrained by history, was, uh, it never actually succeeded as a political program. Because, you know, complete, you know, throwing the individual or the people into completely into having to make all of their moral choices unconstrained by their inheritance is a very hard, uh, it's a difficult agenda to actually put in really socially embedded and reproducing societies. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Nehru uh, because the following quote is attributed to him. History is almost always written by the victors and conquerors and gives their view, or at any rate, the victor's version is given prominence and holds the field. Do, do you agree that conquest is generally the occasion for historical revisionism? Uh, not necessarily. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in Texas at this moment, and uh, the U.S. South lost and, you know, comprehensively lost the American Civil War. And, uh, and yet it captured the historical narrative of the United States for uh, the next, uh, eight, well, the next century, practically speaking. Many of the statues and monuments and inscriptions to the glory of the Confederacy, you know, to the glory of not only the losing side, but on some interpretations, the rebellious or the treasonous side, uh, yet they actually were built into American historical memory. And uh, for three or four years ago, when some of the removal of these monuments, etc., was first brooted, you had, uh, well, you had the President of the United States. Uh, 
Protem, uh, saying that uh, it was uh, that you know this was destroying our beautiful history. This was uh, you know rewriting history, etc., or revisionist history, which has become a, a kind of term of abuse. Whereas you know all real historians know that they're continually revising. So to conclude, to that example, I think shows that the conquest uh, regime doesn't necessarily always, that the conquering regime doesn't necessarily always write the history. I'm not sufficiently well-versed in the uh, historical practice in the United States to know why exactly this happened. Some of this has been discussed in Peter Novick, and Novick's old book now nearly 40 years ago called That Noble Dream. But uh, the capture of institutions and history is uh, significant. The other thing is that the I would say that the that the important phenomenon really is what kind of institutions for the production of collective memory persist through conquests and what vanish as a result of the conquest. The almost complete erasure of Buddhist memory in South Asia only sustained by a trickle of pilgrims from China, from Korea, from Japan, the almost complete, and Tibet, I'm sorry, I should have added, uh, the almost complete erasure of Buddhist historical memory from both folk and high uh, recollection in South Asia, in the Indian subcontinent, is related to the, uh, you know, to the sort of end of Buddhism and the dispersal of its uh, monastic and other communities. Uh, from the ter- 12th century onwards with the Turkish invasions. So so it's uh, it's uh, so it depends on what kind of conquest. And the British, for example, had various strains of um, historical thought amongst themselves. There is what uh, Thomas Troutman has called uh, this, there was a school oriented to what they called you know, what they thought of as endophilia. Uh, which survives on the uh, fringes of uh, American religious and uh, cultural life uh, to the present. But uh, uh, there was endophilia, there were various, uh, there was a very strong reaction to the evangelical and um, efforts at criticizing uh, Indian institutions and at the mass conversion of the Indians. And then later, uh, British regimes were sometimes unhappy with what their predecessors had written about them, about their in their immediate predecessors. So, so you have uh, J. Fitzjames Stevens in the 1870s denouncing uh, Lord Macaulay uh, for having criticized Clive and Hastings because by that time Indian nationalists were reading Macaulay's critiques and using them as an implement, uh, you know, in polemic against the British. So, so there's a kind of uh, succession of these and the spread of printing, the implanting of the school and the textbook and then gradually the academic history meant that there was a, even a, a dominant imperial power like the British generated something of palimpsest, a manuscript that has been erased and overwritten several times, generated something like a palimpsest rather than a single dominant historical discourse. So, and the uh, the kind of, uh, 
the sort of uh, the patronage and the support of the institutions of memory is i would say the crucial element in the preservation or disappearance of memory and i think the great example of that is the loss of the hieroglyphic script uh, under the romans in the late roman empire after the conversion to christianity when first uh, all the lands of the uh, of the ancient uh, egyptian churches were confiscated and consequently the literati fell out of employ and secondly when all the temples were themselves closed down as you know as pagan and um, heathen and so forth and consequently after about 500 of the common era there was no uh, nobody anywhere in the world could read hieroglyphic anymore and it's not until the 19th century with champollion and the french expedition and you know a history which is i'm sure familiar to many that uh, it was recovered and something like 2000 odd years of egyptian history could actually be textually read rather than guessed at from looking at you know enormous monuments and buildings so so it's a it's a, it's in the history is not always just written by the conquerors and um, the conquerors uh, may be uh, more important in uh, in deciding whether or not the previous uh, traditions of literate and specialized history survive or not and i think the case of roman egypt is one of the best instances on the other hand china has seen many conquest regimes but a literate tradition originating in fact probably in the 15th century uh, bce of astronomy and the record of astrological uh, astronomy of folk of sort of prediction and so forth created a strong written tradition and the idea that each dynasty it was the duty of the imperial historian of each dynasty to write the history of of the preceding empire and so you have a much deeper historical record in china in fact probably uniquely deep historical record in china and a maintenance of scripts so that it is possible for a uh, uh, somebody who reads classical chinese to look at an oracle bone from 1200 bce and be able to make out a few of the characters scratched on the oracle bone that kind of continuity of script or even of language of script actually because it's not language uh, is uh, missing elsewhere but here the structures of imperial bureaucracy persisted through successive conquest regimes even if they were sometimes seriously attenuated so i don't know if that answers your question but it's as i said it's historically variable but the no the conquerors don't get necessarily to write the history. Very interesting answer. Yes. I I thank you for it. And uh and finally, I'd like to bring your expertise back around to the present day in the United States. Uh last year, the Woodrow Wilson National Fellowship Foundation reported the findings of a survey, a large survey of 41,000 Americans in all 50 states and Washington DC. and most disturbingly they found that only 27% of those under the age of 45 could demonstrate a basic knowledge of american history only 4 out of every 10 americans passed the exam what does it mean to you as an historian to see that most americans are very ignorant of their own history 
Yes, uh, uh, I, I didn't know of this survey, but yes, I'm not surprised. Um, well, it's uh, it's uh, it's it is quite um, it's quite striking. Uh, the question would be, uh, what the you know not so much as what they didn't know as what they knew. I would be actually much more interested in what forms of collective memory they had preserved. And ah, that's an interesting perspective. Yes. Yes. Uh, and also the, so for instance, you know, we had an uh, historian of, uh, of 19th century, of the uh, 19th century South come and give us a talk in which he exhibited uh, photos of uh, various uh, statues and monuments to the Confederacy. There's quite a well-known bronze statue of the mid late 19th century uh, showing um, a retreating Confederate, you know, a Confederate soldier at the end of the Civil War withdrawing, but with his uh, rifle and um, in a kind of posture of some defiance. And when he asked the townspeople in whose town square this was, this was in Texas, they said, oh, you mean our Minuteman statue? So this statue, which was supposed, uh, you know, which was actually very realistic in the uniform, in the weapon and everything else, had been identified with the Minutemen who turned out to resist the British in 1775 in Massachusetts. So <laughs> it's the, and that is in a, you know, in a sort of highly literate uh, society where uh, school education is necessary and so forth. So, but the larger thing would be that it's quite, I mean, I would not be surprised by the results that uh, major elements of U.S. history were forgotten or misremembered. Uh, the kind of la issue would be what is the incentive? Not the incentive, but, you know, what are the settings of rehearsal and repetition that actually ingrain and transmit uh, collective memory to, to individuals and communities. And I would like to sort of end with the in example that I have in my text of the, the Jewish community on the west coast of India, of which there's a fleeting mention in Moses Maimonides as people who had actually learned again about Judaism from his book. And that's, he died in 1199. But the, the Beni Israel, which is children of Israel, were a caste in Western India spread out along the coast, ruralized, without a synagogue, without a copy of the Torah, and uh, with just the few lines orally transmitted of the Hebrew prayer, which I'm going to mispronounce this, so first, pardon my, uh, which begins, I think, Shema, O Israel. And that was all that they remembered, and it was recited without comprehension at all sorts of special occasions. But they maintained a tradition of performance at festivals and they maintained a key taboos, including not working on Saturdays, on the Sabbath. So, so here, much memory is lost, including the memory of the origins and so forth, but there's a performative memory because it is renewed at periodic festivals, even if the calendar were used for those festivals is actually the local Indic calendar. So uh, coming back to the United States, so what are the occasions where memory is rehearsed? Because much of what um, students learn at school and so forth is soon forgotten. 
unless it is reinforced in some way. And so, yeah, the results of that particular survey were uh, are not surprising to me. I do wish that they had asked people what they actually remembered, or, you know, if there had been some mechanism for uh, generating that, because that would be uh, very interesting to me as a, as a historian of memory. Well, Sumith, you've given us a great deal to think about, and I appreciate it. Before I let you go, please tell us what you're working on now. Uh, well, I have actually two. I have a. Uh, I was. Uh, I've just published an essay actually on uh, uh, on pandemics in India's historic in the in, in the Indian historical past. So that was a kind of uh, quick uh, study since I've studied history of medicine among my books. But mm. um, uh, the current project uh, is. Um, I have a book in production, which is a survey of tribes and states across Asia. And in this instance, I'm treating Asia in an expansive way of stretching from the uh, Isthmus of Suez east to the Sea of Japan. So uh, so it's about tribes and states in Asia uh, as far as we can, uh, as far as, you know, the historical record permits us to go. So that is uh, going to come out in the spring from the Amer- Association for Asian Studies. And um, I have one or two smaller projects. So I have this sort of bad habit of moving from you know one area to another rather than advancing my career by digging more and more deeply into a given rut. Well, you, one can't constrain a, uh, an active mind. I, I wish you lots of luck with the book. And uh, I'll try to check out your essay, uh, your article about pandemics. It's certainly as timely as could be. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for your important work. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov. Bye-bye. Goodbye. I'd like to join my thanks for Bela as well. Terrific. She deserves it. <laughs> thanks so much. Bye-bye so much. Bye-bye.